Well, as you are returning to your seats, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. Whether you brought a Bible of your own or you want to make use of one of our pew Bibles, it's also printed for you on page 9 of your bulletin. John chapter 11. It's a fairly large section that we're going to be tackling, verses 17 through 44. This is part 20 of our series from John's Gospel, a series I've entitled, That You May Believe. Again, taking that phrase from John's own mouth in chapter 20 for the reason in which he wrote his gospel. But we are in chapter 11 this morning, continuing from where we left off last week. We want to complete the Lazarus story, and so we have to take this large section as a whole. Again, verses 17 through 44. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And he said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So he took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound in linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, Unbind him and let him go. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, it remains forever. Amen. We continue this morning in this most remarkable of stories, the Lazarus story that we started last week. A story that is arguably 
the most profound miracle that Jesus performs this side of the resurrection. A, a miracle that powerfully embodies what we've talked about often in John, that in the ministry, in the person of Christ, God is making all things new. God is quite literally remaking the world. And we've seen this all throughout the gospel. And so, of course, this is a gigantic text and one that we, we cannot do justice to every detail. It's going to require more than one sermon. But as we continue in this glorious story that we began last week, and as we continue specifically towards its glorious ending, I'd invite you to simply, from this 10,000-foot level, this bird's-eye-view level, to see our text this morning in three parts. In verses 17 through 27, or that first section, that first paragraph in your bulletin, particularly the way it's printed, Jesus informs us. He informs us. In verses 28 through 37, that second section, Jesus identifies with us. And then that third section, verses 38 through the end, Jesus intervenes. Jesus informs, Jesus identifies, and Jesus intervenes. So let's just consider those in turn. Jesus informs. We mentioned last week that Jesus, in hearing the news about Lazarus, didn't immediately go to him. That he delayed, we were told in the previous verses, he delayed two days. He didn't rush to Bethany, but instead he stayed on the other side of the Jordan where he had fled uh, previously, and he stayed two more days. It was a detail that is perplexing at, at first glance. It seems insensitive on the part of Jesus, but as we dug deeper, we began to see it's a detail that puts on grand display this very difficult but important uh, tension, if you will, between the deity of Jesus, the deity of Jesus as fully God, being sovereign over all, being omniscient and omnipotent over all, but also the humanity of Jesus. The fact that he's not just fully God, he's also fully man. And so being fully man, being human, he seems you know, seemingly affected by external causes just like we are. And so we saw in that little detail that, that, that Jesus delayed two days because he was reluctant to return so closely to Jerusalem, you were just told that Bethany, where Lazarus died, is only two miles from Jerusalem. It's like, you know, going down to, to Boynton Beach, okay? Two miles from Jerusalem. And so Jesus is initially reluctant to return so closely to the place where he had just been accused of blasphemy. He had just been, they tried to stone him, and he had fled. He seems, again, a bit reluctant to return so quickly, so he delays. But yet we ultimately saw that Jesus, as the great sovereign, Jesus as God, ultimately wielded, and he, and he worked in, and he utilized those seemingly you know, random, human, somewhat evil details. He used those things ultimately as God for his glory. Why? Because as we saw, in delaying, Lazarus would go from sick to dead. He'd go from, you know, uh, triage, the hospital room, to the tomb. 
And in doing so, a greater miracle that will bring God greater glory and ultimately even Lazarus greater good can now be effected. And so we saw that uh, last week. But as we come to these early verses of today's section, we can still sort of feel that tension and still feel the complexity that's here. Jesus does finally arrive in Bethany, but now, according to the calendar, he's four days late. He's four days late, according to the loved ones of Lazarus, by their reckoning. And whatever the reason might be for his lateness, all Martha seems to know is that if Jesus had actually been there, if Jesus had actually been on time, then her brother, who she loves dearly, as we all would expect, her brother would not have died. We see that in verse, in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In fact, this whole first section is just ripe with the tension that seems to be here. I mean, Martha, she can't help herself. She runs to Jesus. She can't even wait for him to come into the village. She runs out to meet him. And it's into this tension, though, into this confusion that we see our first point. Jesus informs Martha of this greater reality. Jesus informs Martha of the truth of what's actually before her. That yes, her brother is dead, but as surely as he's dead, what will happen? He'll live. He'll rise. As we see here in this first section, Jesus is actually, he's communicating, and he's, he's teaching, if you will, proper theology. He's teaching you know, proper doctrine about what it is we should believe and what it is we should hold to. The truth of our lives, the truth of our end, but the truth of the greater reality that lies ahead before us, your brother is dead, but he will rise. He will rise again. He will live. Do you believe this? And Martha's answer, though, if you notice, I mean, she kind of at first feels like it's just one step beyond cliche, right? It sounds very uh, Christian greeting card-ish at first to her. It sounds Hallmark-ish. It sounds cliche. Yeah, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. It all works out in the end. Let go and let God. It sounds to her at first, listen, almost cliche. And she makes this clear if you keep reading. Look in verse uh, 24. Martha says to him, I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection of the last day. I mean, there's this sort of, you know, unsettled response from Martha. She knows this is true in the end, but what does that help her now? It's as if Martha is saying, Jesus, you know, I know that's true, but I wasn't here for an end times class. I'm not here for an eschatology lecture. I've put down the left behind novels, and I'm no longer interested in that sort of consolation. What hope do you have for me now? What hope do I have in the midst of my present sorrow? And you see then, that's where Jesus, his informing of Martha, then goes to a second, deeper level, a level we dare not miss. What does he say? He says in verse 25, when she's questioning you know, him about the end time resurrection, what does Jesus say? I am the resurrection you're hoping for. 
I am the consolation you're looking for. His fifth I am statement in this gospel. I am the resurrection and the life. You see, Jesus is informing Martha, and he's doing the same for us, that what will be true in the future, what is coming true in the glorious future, that God will make all things right in the end, that death will not have the final word over us, it's not just pie in the sky, you know, futuristic, no bearing on the present hope. It's not just our consolation in the end, though it is that too. It's hope that is already now becoming true in the present. That God is bringing the future into the present. And he's beginning to do that with the arrival of Jesus. With the arrival of Jesus on the scene and with his miraculous actions and his life and his ministry. It is the telltale sign for all creation that God is putting his flag in the sand and he's reclaiming what is rightfully his. He's reclaiming what is rightfully his. That with the arrival of Jesus, he is the literal embodiment of that eternal hope. He is the literal embodiment of that resurrection hope. That we now have someone with us. We have Emmanuel, God with us in the situations of life that only seem like death. God, the life-giving one, the one who is making all things new, the one who will do it fully in the end is with us now. And he's starting to do that now. He's turning back the curse. He's turning back the curse. And this is why Jesus performs all the signs that he does in his ministry. Healing and restoring and raising. It's to awaken us to the way God originally intended things. It's to awaken us to God's original design for this earth. But it's also to point us forward to what it will ultimately look like when he makes all things new. When that final shalom, that final peace settles on all of creation, this is what it will look like. The tomb will have no power. Death will have no power. Disease and sickness and misfortune and abuse and marginalization will all be swept away. Will all be done away with. And so Jesus comes and gives the greatest of, you know, movie previews the world's ever seen. The deep voice, you know, the dramatic reading, the best scenes included, this is a snapshot of what it will look like. And he does this again here for Lazarus. But the hope he has and the hope Martha has is the hope that we are also to have. That again, God is with us now. He's with us in the present. He's beginning to bring the hope of heaven here to earth. The Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you see, that's also why, you know, we as Christians, the one, like I say, at the Apostles' Creed, who bear his name, we as Christians, his followers, this is why those of us who understand that resurrection glory, who understand that resurrection hope, minister now in the world. We are called to be agents of resurrection, if you will. There's a great book by one of my favorite authors, Eugene Peterson. It's his book on Ephesians that he titles Practice Resurrection. Practice Resurrection. It's a beautiful title. 
And what he means by that is that we now have become agents of what we see Christ doing here. We now go into the world bringing that resurrection hope, that resurrection glory with us wherever we go. That's why we work as a church, we work as Christians to see the restoration of relationships, to see the reconciliation of things that are broken, to see the restoration of our communities, to see things set right. We do all of that because it's a small reflection of what God is ultimately doing in the end. He's resurrecting. He's making all things new. One author says that the church should be a colony of heaven. A colony of heaven. Where heavenly priorities and heavenly emphases are seen in our lives and in our communities. You see, Jesus informs Martha of these things. He informs her. He informs us. But as we move forward, and again, we're just taking a bird's eye view of this text. If you look in verses 28 to 37, Jesus identifies. He informs, but then he identifies. And he does this particularly with Mary. You can, you can feel the text move its focus from Martha to the other sister, Mary. And Mary didn't initially run out like Martha, but instead she waited. And yet, after she is summoned, Mary goes to join Jesus, and she makes, if you notice, the exact same comment that her sister had made. Look in verse 32. Mary repeats what Martha said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And it's at that point that we then encounter that glorious verse 35. The shortest verse, as we know, in all the scripture. The ones that we love to memorize as kids, because it's the shortest, right? I remember at the high school that I went to, it was a Christian high school, uh, on homecoming or, or winter court chapel, where we would, you know, vote on the, those who were on court, um, you would have to have a favorite Bible verse. And a lot of the kids would choose the most random passages from Ezekiel, you know, Zephaniah, verses no one had heard of, you know, the real weird prophetic texts. Or they would choose this one sometimes, you know, the shortest verse. What's your favorite verse? Uh, Jesus wept. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay. Well, we, we see it here, right? Jesus wept, the shortest verse in the scriptures, the God of all, the Lord of all creation, the, the very maker of our eyes, the maker of our tear ducts, he weeps. He weeps. How can this be so? Well, we see it so for two reasons. First, he identifies with Mary's mourning. He identifies with Mary's mourning, but he does so in a way that is of the greatest and most you know, effective comfort to her and to her disposition. Did you notice that? Did you notice that? Notice how Martha, her sister, needed information. She needed answers. She ran to Jesus with questions. And we see that he provides that. He talks of resurrection, like we said. He kind of informs her theologically of the future hope, the present hope. 
Martha needed information. And some of us are like that. You know, when crisis hits, when difficulty comes, we need answers from God. We need explanations from God. We need specific scripture proofs. We need theology in its most positive form. Good, solid doctrine matters. What you believe matters. Right belief informs right living. Orthodoxy, right belief, informs orthopraxy, right living, right actions. And some of us need that more than others. When confronted with difficulty or tragedy, we need answers, we need information, we need scripture proofs, like I said. But that's not true for everybody. Not true for everybody. There are many here this morning, there are many that we know, who before they need words, they need a hug. Before they need words, they need a hug. Before they need theology, they need your tears. They need my tears. There are many who are wired that way, and Mary is one of them, that they need to be identified with. They need to be wept with. They need, a, they need an arm around their shoulder before we run to, to Scripture, not a bad thing, before we run to wanting to satisfy the, the existential you know, angst that's there, not a bad thing. They need a hug. They need someone who can weep with them. They need the emotional truth of Emmanuel, that God's with us, and so, and so we're with them too. God's beside us, and so we'll be beside them too. And you see that here with Mary. And notice just what a beautiful picture of how the Lord Jesus, in his infinite kindness, does both. He does both. He is a wonderfully catering, wonderfully personal God. He's attentive. He's loving. But he administers that love in the way that we most effective to the person at hand. And if that's true of our Lord, then it should be true of us as well. It should be true of us as a church as well. That we love people at the right moment with the right kind of love that will evidence to them the grace that we know is ours in Christ Jesus. And so you see Christ do this with Mary. But his weeping is not just to identify. It's, it's not just an example. It's not just like, you know, crocodile tears, you know, where he's putting on a good show. He, he's genuinely broken himself. And you see this in the, in the phrases, uh, looking like verse 33. Um, he was deeply moved in his spirit, and he was greatly troubled. I mean, the, the, the language there is this almost righteous anger, this righteous indignation at what is before him, at the situation before him, that the enemy, the evil one, the accuser is, is, is breaking and has broken, has tainted and fractured God's originally glorious creation. Jesus comes and he's deeply troubled. He's deeply moved at the far-reaching, decaying effects of sin in this world. And so because of that, he, he weeps. He genuinely weeps for the brokenness before him. And again, that's instructive for us also as Christians, as his followers. That when we're faced with trials and tragedies and difficulties and funerals, it's okay to weep. It's okay 
to cry. It's okay to mourn. In fact, I would argue it doesn't show a lack of our grasp on the gospel. It shows a tight grip on the gospel. That we understand this is not the way it's supposed to be. That sin has far-reaching effects that we deeply are troubled by. And so we weep. We grieve. But, as we know, and as Paul tells us elsewhere, we don't grieve, we don't cry, we don't mourn. Hopelessly, we ultimately do that with a great hope. And that brings us to our third and our final point. The reason we can, we can actually weep and mourn and grieve but do so with hope is because thirdly and finally, Jesus intervenes. He informs, he identifies, but he ultimately intervenes. And my oh my, <laughs> what a glorious intervention it is. What a glorious intervention. It's the intervention of Jesus in the death of Lazarus, and that's our hope. Again, that's our hope, not just in the future, but in this life. That what Jesus does here for Lazarus, he rolls the stone away, he empties the tomb, he overcomes death in a way that Martha never even imagined was possible. That's why she makes the comment about the odor. Okay? Jesus, what are you doing? Are you crazy? That's going to knock you over. It's going to smell so bad. All right? Martha hadn't even considered something so glorious. But it's that glorious reality, that glorious intervention that demonstrates again for us this morning that this is the God we have on our side. Who is a God like you? We heard in our assurance of pardon. Who is a God like you? This is the God that we have on our side. This is the God who came for us, who will never leave us or forsake us who promises to be with us in the valley of the shadow of death. Yes, in that final valley. Yes, in that final shadow. But in every little valley and little shadow that we encounter before that. And he's with us because, as we see here in these verses, he is the one who has the power over our greatest threat, our greatest enemy. He has that power. And we see that power, of course, most fully in his own resurrection. The tomb that will hold Jesus just a few days later will be overcome. The stone that will seal him in just a few days later will itself be rolled away. That Jesus Christ might rise victorious, atoning for sin, triumphing over the grave, and promising all who follow him. He asks the sisters, do you believe? He promises all who follow him, all who believe, that this is our destiny as well. That though you die, you'll live. That if you believe, you'll see the glory of God. So that when our time comes, when our time comes, this Jesus, the one who has the power over death, over hell, over the grave, will say the same things about us. Unbind him. Unbind her. Let them go. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. And so if Jesus intervenes in that way, if he's conquered our greatest enemy, then where can he intervene for you this morning? What's happening in your life this morning? 
what situation seems like death before you this morning, that you can turn over to the Lord of all, that you can trust to the Lord of all, knowing that he will again intervene for you, not always in ways we understand, but in ways that are for his glory and for our good, because he hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't abandoned you. There's a love that will chase you even to the tomb. It's a love of the Father through Christ Jesus. I'll close with this. One of my favorite stories that illustrates this. It goes like this. Everybody felt it. A moment of eerie silence, a low rumble, and even the ground began to shake. Buildings swayed and buckled and collapsed like houses of cards. Less than four minutes later, over 30,000 were dead from a magnitude 8.2 earthquake that rocked and nearly flattened Armenia in 1989. In the muddled chaos, a distressed father bolted through the winding streets leading to the school where his son had gone earlier that morning. The man couldn't stop thinking about the promise he'd given his son many times. No matter what happens, I'll always be there. He reached the site where the school had been, but saw only a pile of rubble. He stood there at first, fighting back tears, and then, shook up, and then took off, stumbling over debris toward the east corner where he knew his son's classroom had been. With nothing but his bare hands, he began to dig. He was desperately pulling up bricks and pieces of wall plaster, while others stood by watching in forlorn disbelief. And he heard someone growl, forget it, man, they're all dead. But he looked up, flustered, and replied, you can grumble, or you can help me lift these bricks. Only a few pitched in, and most of them gave up once their muscles began to ache. But the man couldn't stop thinking about his son. He kept digging and digging for hours, 12 hours, 18 hours, 24 hours, 36 hours. And finally, into the 38th hour, he heard a muffled groan from under a piece of wallboard, and he seized the board, pulled it back, and cried, Armand! From the darkness came a slight shaking voice, Papa? Other weak voices began calling out as the young survivors stirred beneath the still uncleared rubble. Gasps and shouts of bewildered relief came from the few onlookers and parents who remained. They, they found 14 of the 33 students still alive. When Armand, the son, finally emerged, he tried to help dig until all his surviving classmates were out. Everybody standing there heard him as he turned to his friends and said, See? I told you, my father, he wouldn't forget us. That's the kind of faith we need because that's the kind of father we have. You see, there's a, there's a love there's a love that chases us, even to the tomb. It never leaves us, never forsakes us, but it always intervenes with that life-giving grace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for that, that grace that chases us, that pursues us. We thank you for that grace that even found Lazarus in the tomb. And we know it's the same grace that's found us. It's the same grace that's brought us from death to life, that's given us hope in the midst of darkness because the light has come. 
And so, Father, we do thank you again for who you are, for what you've done in and through the resurrecting power of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that that would be the hope that we build our lives upon. That would be the light that we bring into the darkness of our lives, that we bring into the difficult situations of our lives. We thank you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.